What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Mind Over Macros podcast. As always, I am your host, Mike Milner. And today I had another amazing guest on the show. I had Kara Collier from NutriSense. They do continuous glucose monitoring. And what I love about their program is they actually pair you with a human. So it's not just data, it's data driven with human connection. Um, Super interesting conversation that we had. I know you guys are going to love it, especially if you are a data nerd. So for all of you type threes out there, the data geeks out there like myself, I'm not a type three, but I love to nerd out on some data. You guys are going to really enjoy this conversation. If you do, we would love to hear about it. You can tag myself on Instagram first. Of course, you have to take a screenshot of the episode. So we know that you're actually listening. Don't take a screenshot like three seconds in because then I don't know if you actually listen. Take a screenshot like midway through and then it's real. Um, I'm kidding. You don't have to take a screenshot at any particular time, but post it to your stories on Instagram and tag me at coach underscore Mike underscore Milner. And you can tag NutriSense at NutriSense IO. That's N-U-T-R-I-S-E-N-S-E-I-O and enjoy the episode. All right, everybody. I am joined today by a very special guest. I have Kara Collier on the show with me today. Uh, First of all, thanks for joining. Yeah, absolutely. Excited to be here. Yeah, for sure. Um, So Kara is the co-founder of NutriSense and the VP of Health, I believe. Um, And NutriSense is doing some pretty cool things in the world of metabolic health and glucose monitoring, um, things that we talk about frequently on the show, especially metabolic health. That's something that I feel like I've beaten to death, but it's great to have somebody who is more of an expert than I am. And we are going to dig in. Um, So before we like jump into all of the details about that, I would love to hear a little bit about like the origin story Um, from from a personal standpoint, like how you got into the industry and then how NutriSense came to be uh, and just kind of like your background. And um, yeah, I would love to hear how it all started. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start with my story and then how how NutriSense start kind of came out of all of that. But um, I've been interested in nutrition and lifestyle changes my whole life. Um, I was an athlete, did sports growing up and saw firsthand the power of manipulating your environment and the things you eat and the things you do and how much that can actually affect your performance. Um, So I've always been interested in nutrition and became a dietitian. Um, So clinically trained to work in a more traditional setting as a dietitian and started my career in that traditional way. So mostly working in hospitals with patients who are very sick in clinics, you know, kind of doing the one-on-one counseling. And through that experience uh, is what eventually led me to NutriSense because that traditional dietetics career became really frustrating for me. It was very difficult to make the changes in the way that I wanted to within the constraints of the typical healthcare system. Um, I'm sure, you know, a lot of people have heard this. It's more sick care than healthcare in the sense that if you're really trying to focus on nutrition, lifestyle prevention, that current system is just not built for that. So was seeing a lot of patients who are really sick. And if I could have intervened with them 20, 30 years earlier, we probably could have made much more meaningful differences than when I was able to interject with them, not able to make a lot of changes. So from that experience, kind of went to a different nutrition software startup, got my feet wet, learning about entrepreneurship, 
tech, software, but all the while was still thinking about those very real problems I saw in day-to-day life in the healthcare system. And what it came down to when I went down the rabbit hole of really trying to think about the core issues that drive a lot of that unnecessary suffering, it all came back to metabolic health. Like if we're going to do an 80, 20 rule of what's the biggest bang for our buck here, we got to find some of those core issues. And a lot of that stems from metabolic dysfunction, you know, not just diabetes, of course, but cardiovascular disease, um, you know, dementia, Alzheimer's, kidney disease, all the things I was seeing. So that kind of spun me off into thinking about what realistic solutions were there to solve some of the metabolic health problems I'm seeing in a way that actually drives behavior change and actually works rather than try to fix the current healthcare system, try to do something different that helps instead. And that's where um, I got the idea for NutriSense. And then I happened to be introduced with my two co-founders, Alex and Dan, who had a very similar idea and different backgrounds than me. So together um, we created kind of a team that was very cohesive Uh, They come from tech background and finance background, where I'm coming from more of the subject matter expertise. And then from that, NutriSense was born. And what we're doing at NutriSense is we're pairing the continuous glucose monitoring technology, which is just what it sounds. You know, you're able to continuously monitor your glucose levels with this technology. But then we've created our own app that is more for the everyday person rather than the typical use case for this hardware, which is medical with your doctor because you have diabetes and you're on insulin. Uh, so our app instead is for more kind of the everyday use towards that goal of prevention, health optimization. And then we also pair uh, that app with a dietitian. So coming from that world, I still know how important it is to have that human component. Data only gets you so so far. And we really believe that that true key to driving behavior change and making a difference in people's lives is pairing human with data. And then that's really kind of where the magic happens. Yeah. I love that. And I love the the origin story, how it all came to be. It's um, a lot of us go through that path of realizing that we need to tr- treat the root cause instead of the yeah. symptoms. And I think sometimes we learn that the hard way when we're trying to treat the symptom instead of getting to the bottom of like, why is this dysfunction showing up in the first place? Um, you mentioned being like data-driven plus having that human connection, which I think is super important. Um, one of the things that I always think about with data is you have people that consider themselves very data-driven and they track everything. They track macros, they track their steps, their water, their sodium, their whatever fiber, and it can all be useful in a way. But I often find that Sometimes we track data just to track data, and there are certain pieces of information that don't really inform our behavior or don't really help us modify behavior. So as a company, how do you kind of tease out what's worth monitoring and what's not? And like focusing on like the big data points that can actually help to inform and modify behavior change, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Data is extremely helpful. You know, it can help personalize things. It can help give you direction, signal through all the noise, but it can also become too much. Exactly like you're saying, there's a point of diminishing returns where it's like more is not always better. And also if you don't have the understanding of where that signal is, 
like you're saying, you could be chasing the wrong direction. And so that's where we do include the human component. So part of this um, as a newer company is making sure that the human is there to guide the individual through all of that data. As our software becomes more sophisticated and learns those trends from the human, you can eventually be build in you know, AI systems and machine learning system, but that takes a lot of data before we can get there. So the solution will always have a human component, but right now we rely even more heavily on that human to be able to sift through that of where is the most important signal here. And they're pairing that with their expertise of, you know, classic training and understanding nutrition and lifestyle and metabolic health, but then also seeing thousands and thousands of people's glucose data sets, you quickly start to see what somebody who's seen it for the first time can't see that pattern recognition. So that coach is so helpful because they're just more experienced in it. And then we're also pairing that with someone's background. So if you are very healthy, you're here for prevention reasons, and you're a weightlifter, you're very lean, we're going to be looking for different signal or different um, suggestions than somebody who's pre-diabetic on the borderline of diabetes, hasn't ever you know, done anything actively towards their you know, diet or exercise. So context is also important, which again, eventually with enough data, you can drive that um, from a software perspective, but uh, those nuances have to be taken into account and they are often glossed over when you're just reading like a blog article that's maybe a little bit more generic and not taking into those complexities. Yeah. Yeah. I'm super curious if you find that your users are either like two categories that I immediately think of. Number one is like the athlete that you mentioned where we're trying to optimize everything. Yeah. Like if we can get 1% better, like sign me up. And then on the other end is people who are experiencing some kind of condition where it's been like the wake up call, like, oh shit, my doctor said I'm pre-diabetic or I'm diabetic. Like now I, I need to like do something about this. Um, do you find that that's kind of the two categories or do you also find that just gen pop everyday people who are like, you know what, this would be really cool to know and might help me uh, make better choices. Like, I'm just curious where that, that user base yeah. Yeah, generally two major categories like you're talking about. One is where I would also group the athletes, but then there are other people in that category of maybe like executives or um, biohackers, you know, anybody who is healthy, but really just trying to move the needle even more and get that personalized data. And they're really focused on prevention and optimization. And then there's the other buckets where it's not typically what we're seeing in the hospitals where they have three chronic conditions that are out of control. It's more like um, on the edge of maybe a, a concrete health problem. So maybe the pre-diabetic example or overweight, but not yet having any chronic health conditions. Um, we see a lot of like PCOS, Hashimoto's, um, conditions that are related to metabolic health that somebody has a very specific health goal related to. Um, the other category we see a lot of is also people using this as an accountability tool, which I think is kind of an underrated benefit of the data is there's always like a learning phase in the beginning. And for that biohacker group, the learning phase might be shorter because they already know a lot. There's less to learn. Whereas that other group, the learning phase might be six months of learning about yourself, changing different things, but eventually it shifts from learning to behavior change, like those consistent habits and the data really drives sticky habits, which as healthcare professionals, we know is 
the, the key, right? It's you can educate someone until you're blue in the face, but if they can't be consistent with it, then you're not going to have the success that you want. Um, so a lot of people will eventually learn that through the software and the tool is that it's helping them drive accountability. But some people come specifically for that. You know, maybe they lost a hundred pounds and they don't want to gain it back. And so they're willing um, to use this, even though maybe it's more expensive than a traditional account accountability partner or accountability journal, but they made major health progress and they are not willing to risk, you know, reversing that or, or sliding back in the other direction. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, and I'm curious what data points or trends you look at to kind of determine somebody's metabolic health or metabolic condition uh, when you're looking at an individual, obviously everybody's different. What are like the major data points that you utilize to say, okay, like this is where we're at with your metabolic health. And this is probably what we're going to need to do moving forward. Uh, I'm curious, like what those major signals are. Yeah, absolutely. So of course, everybody that we're working with has the glucose data. So there are signals in that, but then we also um, sync with a lot of common wearables. So like if you have a smart uh, scale or your Apple watch, so we'll look at some of those signals as well. Um, you know, blood pressure, pressure cuffs that sync with Bluetooth. A lot of them come through our app as well. But if we're just looking at the glucose data, you can think about the signals in two settings. One is meal specific, what's happening when you're eating. And then the other is kind of a more of a daily view or a weekly, monthly trend of your glucose values. So if we're looking at meals, what we typically want to see is how high does your glucose go? And for a non-diabetic individual, we're looking at a ceiling of usually around 140 milligrams per deciliter is what it's measured in as kind of a, a good threshold to aim for. And then we're also looking at how quickly does your glucose return back down to normal? So usually we want to see it um, back to what it was pre-meal or around hundred or lower within two or three hours of eating. And those are two powerful signals that you have a healthy, robust, metabolic system that can process food appropriately, kind of regain that normalcy after eating. I think a lot of people, this, you know, this is a large myth when measuring your glucose values, expect like a flat glucose line. They like, don't want their glucose to move at all. They're like, I ate and it, it went up 10 points. That's totally okay. You know, we expect your glucose to fluctuate, especially when you're eating and especially when you're eating carbohydrates, it's more of, is it within those normal parameters? Um, so never want people to think that that glucose shouldn't move. If we also had a continuous lipid monitor and you didn't want your lipids to move either, then suddenly we would be left with nothing to eat. So the goal is not a flat glucose line. Um, and then if we're looking at that macro level, we want to see what your glucose is like in a fasted state. So typically uh, we're looking for something between 70 and 90 as a really optimal fasting glucose level. And that kind of helps indicate how your body is uh, handling and, and processing all of this without food. And so it's kind of a different physiological system in a sense than when you're eating. And then the other is just your average glucose levels that gives us a lot of signals. So what's happening in a 24 hour period, maybe you have some ups and downs, but overall your average is really low, which means your body is not exposed to very high levels of glucose in circulation. So we're looking for an average of 105 or lower. And kind of, if we're looking at traditional metrics, a lot of people will capture average glucose from a hemoglobin A1C. So people are probably familiar with that. That's an estimated average glucose from the last three months 
But we also know that that average is not perfectly accurate either. There are some flaws with that measure. Um, one is that it's dependent on your red blood cells. And so, you know, I don't know if you've spoken on this before, but if you have anything that skews the length of that, your red blood cells live, it's going to skew the results of that. So some common things are like anemia, um, blood loss, smoking, some vitamin deficiencies will also skew this a lot of genetic disorders. Um, and so getting that average glucose level from the CGM is, uh, tells us a little bit more accurately of, of where you might be. Yeah. And I'm, my brain is firing right now. There's so many, <laughs> like, first of all, as somebody who loves to nerd out on data, I'm thinking about like all of the various use cases for different foods and how it applies. And, and I would be the person that would like test out everything and just eat like plain rice and see how that impacts my glucose and potatoes, yeah. and try like a cookie and just experiment and see what the data tells me. Um, and I think it would actually be really useful then to see what happens when you eat something like, cause a lot of people think of carbs and they're like, Oh my God, I have to stay away from carbs because they spike, spike my blood sugar. And then they, then it crashes, um, failing to realize that if you combine carbs with protein and fats, then you're not going to have the massive spike and crash. Um, so there's that part that I think would be really useful. Yeah. I'm wondering how much you look at other areas with like outside of nutrition, looking at what happens during exercise and, and post-workout and what happens during stressful periods. If you can see things like, oh, where did this come from? Maybe you got into an argument with like a spouse and your you know, cortisol was high and then your blood sugar went up. And there's like all of this, like all of these things that you can look at from data that would give insight into stress and recovery and things like that. Do you implement that? Is that stuff that you look at with clients? Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the wonderful things about glucose levels in general is it's not just driven by nutrition. It's not just driven, driven by carbohydrates. There are a lot of factors that will influence our glucose levels. So for thinking again, 80, 20 rule, what should, what could we measure that tells us a lot about our health? That's why glucose is so useful, but we always explain it to clients as there's kind of four pillars, four legs of the chair of what to focus on. If you're thinking about optimizing your glucose levels. And so one is of course, looking at nutrition when you're eating, what, like at what time, what's the composition, what, you know, how are you combining it with all those different macronutrients, all of those uh, components of nutrition. But then we also have activity level. So everything to do with physical activity, fitness level, and then there's stress. So the physiological stress of mental stress, um, maybe you're injured, and then there's sleep. And so sleep and stress are the two big ones that I think a lot of people don't realize how much of an impact it's going to have until they really start seeing the data. You know, for somebody who is maybe stressed out 24 seven, it feels normal, like normal is normal. And then it can be helpful when you see the data and you see those big glucose spikes when you're having those acutely stressful moments, or you're seeing your fasting glucose levels rise because you're ruminating at night. Uh, so for a lot of people having that concrete evidence that maybe their stress is higher than they realize can be really helpful in, you know, helping them to realize it's something to focus on and prioritize. So we definitely talk about all four of those pillars all the time. I think it's cool because it makes it tangible. Yeah, exactly. You can hear coaches and people like myself, where I talk about stress and sleep and all these things They're like, yeah, yeah, I know it's important, yeah. but when you have like the data to corroborate and say, you know what, this is actually impacting me more than I thought. And I can see it with the data trends. Okay. I should probably do something about it. Um, and so this is, I'm going to ask you a question that is probably very nuanced and people get frustrated with me all the time when they say, 
you know, what should I do about this? And I say, it depends. And that's always my answer. It depends um, because everybody's different. So this is probably going to be an it depends question, but hopefully we can at least start to dig into the answer here. If somebody does find out through the data that, you know what, there's some level of insulin resistance, there's, uh, you know, blood sugar levels are higher than we'd like. They're not coming down, um, you know, in that postprandial period then what's the action step from there? Like somebody's like, you know what? I, I see the issue, but I want to fix it. And I want to be more you know, insulin sensitive and I want to take care of this. Um, where do we go from there? Yeah. And as you said, it definitely depends <laughs> because we're going to have different scenarios of what, what their lifestyle habits are. But going back to those four pillars as kind of the core foundation is helpful. Um, so looking at nutrition are, you know, what does your nutrition habits look like? Are we eating a lot of processed foods? You know, are we eating a lot of sugar and refined carbohydrates? Are we missing the mark on protein? So a lot of those nutrition fundamentals of what we'll look at first and also kind of paying attention to when you're eating, how often you're eating. If you are showing signs of metabolic dysfunction and insulin resistance, leaning on tools like intermittent fasting or even some prolonged fasting can help. Um, I think a lot of times the healthier the person is, the more they do those types of habits when it's actually more helpful, helpful for the people who are further along on like the metabolic dysfunction spectrum. Um, that can be really helpful. Exercise is a huge one. And so really starting simple. I think a lot of people who maybe aren't doing a lot of fitness routine get overwhelmed at the idea of incorporating a new routine, but things such as like daily consistent walking, strength training, especially help improve that insulin sensitivity really quickly. So those will be things like low hanging fruit that we'll do if somebody's not already doing them. If you do have kind of a basic fitness routine already, trying to increase lean muscle mass as much as possible. You know, I'm sure that you've talked about this before. It's really important to kind of have a good strength training routine and a lot of lean body mass, especially for our older women who are going through menopause. That's one of the key differentiators we see during that life transition where you naturally become less insulin sensitive. People are more prone to insulin resistant glucose patterns as they're going through menopause because your hormones change, you know, things are different physiologically and the women we see have the best glucose responses through that change are those that have a really good amount of lean body mass already are already doing a lot of strength training. Um, so that's a really helpful tool. And then of course, like looking at stress and sleep and kind of trying to dig into those. So starting with the fundamentals, it's not as like exciting or flashy as what people want. They're always like, what supplements should I take? And there are some that are helpful, uh, but we really have to master those fundamentals if we want to be able to like actually change what our glucose patterns are looking like. And sometimes we just lean on those more heavily than maybe somebody who's healthy. You know, we might do more fasting or more carbohydrate restriction if we're seeing a lot of um, higher glucose levels. And it could be a temporary intervention needed in order to kind of reset and fix some of that metabolic dysfunction. Yeah. And you, you mentioned menopause and I wasn't planning on going in this direction, but it is something that is a frequently asked question about that time period of life. And what I'm curious about is a lot of women feel like, well, the deck is already stacked against me because I have these hormonal changes that are then impacting my sleep. I'm getting hot flashes, things like that. So I'm, I'm already like one leg of that chair is already knocked out. And now because I'm not sleeping now, I'm not, you know, my stress levels are higher. 
And then because I'm not sleeping and I'm under more stress, I don't really feel like working out and maybe I make poor food choices. It's like once that one leg of the chair is knocked out, then the rest come falling off. Um, So any like advice or just general um, feedback for women going through that phase of life to uh, not allow it to prevent them from achieving their goals and making the changes that they want? Yeah, I think it helps to just lay the groundwork that it is possible to have a successful transition through this time period where, you know, we have seen so many women who are going through menopause or postmenopausal that are, are successful throughout it. There are those challenges and inherently, yeah, your hormones have completely changed, which alters the way that your body functions. And that's just an inevitable truth, but giving people the empowerment that that doesn't mean that gaining weight is inevitable or, you know, becoming pre-diabetic is inevitable through this period. Uh, so it is possible we've seen it, but it's that flywheel effect, both negative and positive behaviors will put you on that flywheel of, you know, yeah, you're not sleeping. So then you're reaching for the chips and then you're gaining weight and then you're frustrated and that starts that negative flywheel. So really recommending with anybody who's trying to make behavior change is start small, do something that is a win to start the positive flywheel, because it will have the same effect where now, you know, you are at the gym and you're feeling a little bit better, you're getting better energy levels. So then it's easier to eat something healthy. So start small, but know that it is completely possible. And there are a lot of women doing it and it's not out of your control to have success through that life transition. All right. We're going to take a very short break from this conversation to tell you about Organifi. You should already know about Organifi, but based on this conversation we're having right now, obviously food quality is important. Getting in enough vitamins, minerals, micronutrients to support your nutritional efforts is key to health, longevity, body composition, metabolic health, as we're chatting about today. Organifi has you covered. It's funny in my Facebook group right now, which you should all be a part of, It's the personality diet and neurotype training. Go join. We're having a whole conversation about the Organifi morning routine, which is that a lot of us are starting each day with our green juice before we have some coffee. And it is a great way to stack a couple habits that are, I mean, coffee, everybody loves coffee. It's like the best moment of every day, right? So start with some green juice. You get in some water, you get in all of your micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, get some quality things into your body to start the day and then have your coffee. This is literally the conversation that's going on in the Facebook community. If you want 20% off, you want to try green juice for yourself, go to Organifi.com slash popfam. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com slash P-O-P-F-A-M. Use code popfam at checkout. Not only that, but we're also having a debate about whether the gold juice or the gold chocolate is better for your wind down routine. It's a very heated debate right now. I'm going to tell you I am team gold chocolate. So if you want to be on the right side, then you will get the gold chocolate. If you want to try out the other side, just get your standard gold juice. Either way, mix it in some hot almond milk, some warm almond milk, and put some True Whip or whatever you like on top. It is absolute heaven for your wind down routine. Yes, they have other products, but I love to start my day with a positive and end my day with a positive. Start with the green juice end with the gold juice. You can't go wrong. Go to Organifi.com slash popfam. Get yourself 20% off. And now let's get back to the episode. Uh, I'm curious if you have one 
start small suggestion. And again, this isn't, it depends, but like something that, you know, for everybody out there is like an easy, and I'll just, I'll just tell you, my answer is always walking. Um, but I'm wondering if there's like a starting point that you're like, you know what, if you can't do anything else, just do this and start there. What is that for you? Walking is a huge one too. I would definitely agree with that. Like moving throughout the day. A lot of people make the mistake of like, they do their hour gym session and they don't move at all the rest of the day. And we see so much more success from the people who are just moving a lot. The other big thing is what you mentioned is just like prioritizing protein at every meal and eating that protein first, even just that simple, simple switch of like, let's say at breakfast, you're eating berries and scrambled eggs, like eat the eggs first. And then the berries that makes a really big difference. Or a lot of times people will snack on just carbohydrates or uh, a lot of times our our appetizers or the first thing we're eating is kind of more the refined carbohydrates. So really prioritizing that protein intake and the order of those macronutrients can make a really big difference. And once somebody knows that it's so much easier. And also with the walking is if you feel like you had like a big meal or you're like, maybe that wasn't the ideal choice. First of all, it's okay. You know, we're all human. It has to be realistic, but going on a walk in those moments, like afterwards, makes a really big difference. Not just moving throughout the day, but if you had a heavy evening meal, maybe you went out to eat with friends, walking home instead, or encouraging everybody to go on a walk together afterwards uh, can really make a big difference. Actually, just reminded me of a study that I have not, I'm probably going to be way off in the details because I haven't thought about this in a, in a long time, but I believe it was measuring 10 minute um, walks after a meal versus like a 40 minute walk once a day and showing the the difference. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it definitely sounds familiar. And I think that they've done similar studies just in like bursts of exercise, not like, not even just specific to walking. Um, we could probably, we could probably find that, but it's certainly true that those bursts or those small moments can be much more significant than even like a big intense workout is. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Another hypothetical that I would love to mm-hmm. dive into. Um, if we're looking at somebody's metabolic health and overall body composition, and, and we take a, an avatar and we say, okay, let's just say 2000 calories per day, their macros are equated. Um, and that's going to create some kind of weight loss. They're, they're going to start losing weight at a sustainable rate on those calorie and macro numbers. Um, if we take that same person and we like duplicate them and in scenario a they're eating well-balanced meals they're doing all the things with you know keeping blood sugar stable they're they're not just eating like refined carbs with nothing else it's well-balanced protein first all of those things high quality nutrition and in scenario b same avatar same person all things are equal the composition of their meals is just different. So they're ending at the same calorie and macro totals, but maybe it's more processed food. Maybe they're eating just, you know, refined carbs at certain meals, but then inevitably they're like balancing that out to, to hit the same macro totals. Um, hopefully you understand where I'm going. (laughs) Body composition, they probably will be identical. What might we see as the differences between the two? Yeah, this is a really good hypothetical question. I love the way you laid it out. I, you know, personally believe from anecdotal experience working with people that they're not going to have the same exact metabolic health outcomes, nor are they probably going to have the same long-term health outcomes. Um, Somebody who's eating that more nutrient-dense whole food approach is most likely going to have significantly better outcomes in the long-term as opposed to somebody who's 
just hitting the macros, but it's, you know, it's, it's the pop tart cereal diet, which we've all seen. And I'm sure everybody has done from time to time. And an example of this that I can show is we have a lot of people who will come to us. We started to see this kind of anecdotal trend of they used to be endurance athletes and now maybe they're in their forties and they still run, they still cycle, they still do triathlons, but not as a high intensity level. And they're still the same weight, still the same body composition, you know, still all things considered very healthy, but they're showing pre-diabetic glucose levels. And it was from years of goose and like carb loading. And we've seen this trend enough that it feels quite significant of how you can tell the difference between the actual composition, even if somebody else is doing a similar pattern, but following it using, you know, whole foods, less like refined carbohydrates. Uh, so I believe that it makes a big difference and those nutrients can really drive what's happening behind the scenes, you know, some from a metabolic level, like when people ask what supplements should I take a lot of times, um, it depends on what you're eating. So a lot of the supplements, especially from a micronutrient standpoint are only going to help improve your glucose levels. If you're deficient in those nutrients. So specifically like chromium, magnesium, zinc, vitamin D, some of the B vitamins, all of those play a role in our metabolic health, our metabolism. So if we're lacking a lot of those nutrients from a more like process, just macro, if it fits your macros type of approach, you might be hitting your weight goals and your, your muscle mass goals by protein, but you're going to be lacking some of those less visible effects from nutrients. And it usually takes a while for those things to catch up with you, but I, I think that they will. Yeah. I think totally agree on the long-term implications. Um, when I was like first getting into the space, um, at this point, I don't know, like 12, 13 years ago, something like that. Um, I came up in like the, like I never did bodybuilding, but I kind of came up in the bodybuilding era. Like my first ever coach was a bodybuilder through and through. And it was like, here's how we're going to structure your nutrition. Here are your macros. You're going to eat most of your carbs pre-workout, most of your carbs post-workout. And then you should have like a tiny bit left over for your last meal of the day to help with sleep. And like, that was, it was like pack everything pre and post no carbs with breakfast, no carbs with any other meal, except a little bit with dinner before bed. And everything else is packed pre-workout, post-workout, pre-workout. So you can use that energy post-workout because then there's going to be this, you know, increase in GLUT4 receptors. And you're going to shuttle all of these nutrients to your muscle and you're going to improve insulin sensitivity. Um, and then as I evolved and like started to learn more, I started working with other coaches and it was like, no, we're actually going to want well-balanced meals spread throughout the day. Um, cause that's going to keep blood sugar stable. And like, yes, you can increase the amount of carbs pre and post, but you should really have this like well-balanced approach. Um, do you, is there any validity to the like bodybuilder style where everything is being kind of like jammed in around your workout? Um, to an extent, I think there's validity to having more maybe pre and post workout because again, yeah, you are utilizing a lot of that energy. So especially post, if you want to like refill your glycogen stores, um, but there's a limit to it. So it kind of depends on the amount and what it actually looks like in reality. At the end of the day, we don't have an infinite storage space for glucose, for carbohydrate-based foods. You know, we can store it in our muscles. So if you have a lot of muscle mass, if you are a bodybuilder, you have a lot more stores than somebody else. That's assuming that you really depleted it a lot as well, which 
takes probably more effort than people realize. <laughs> it's not like one uh, hour and a half workout and like I've completely depleted my glycogen, especially if you just ate a bunch of carbohydrates. It doesn't really work that way. So I think there's like some validity to it, but usually it's a little bit better to have balanced overall. And I also think like mentally that usually works better for people also just kind of like a healthier relationship with food. If you're able to think about it in more of like a balanced, consistent approach, I I find that to be more successful. Yeah. And I think what you mentioned on the psychology of it is, is really important because I know a lot of people get caught up in the mindset of I can only eat carbs if I'm training. And it's, it's like, only if I'm working out, then I quote unquote earned my carbs, which is obviously not where we want to be um, mentally. How exactly. Much, how much of the psychology piece do you integrate into what you do? Because I find that to be the most important. Like my podcast is called Mind Over Macros for a reason. Um, yeah. That part is often missed. And it's, you know, it's great that we can implement data and we can have, you know, numbers to drive information, but without the proper mindset without understanding like the long game and getting out of this, like all or nothing thinking or black and white thinking around food. Um, it's really difficult to maintain your results. How much of that, like psychological side of behavior change do you integrate into what you do at NutriSense? Yeah, I totally agree with you that it's really important. Like we were saying, even just the ability to consistently drive behavior change like that is psychological in the sense that it's it's, we all do the things where we're like, oh, I know I should do that, but I don't. And why is that? You know, what component of that is missing? And then there's also the rela- healthy relationship with food. Uh, that's an important component of being able to have long-term success. And so our dietitians are trained in kind of both of those, like how to drive consistent behavior change. Again, thinking back to kind of what drove the idea for NutriSense and like what we're passionate about is like helping people in the long term. So if you see results in the six months you're with us, but then it's not consistent or you're not really going to be able to stick to it. Um, we see that a lot when people are like, well, I'll just go keto forever for the rest of my life. And like that solves the problem because now my glucose looks a lot better. But then you know, Christmas comes around and they binge and then they're like, they're like, screw it. Everything's over. And so that's not the pattern we ever want. If we want to see this person set up for success in the long term. Um, so that's a lot of kind of like what our coaches are also trained in. And we have a couple of people on our team who are more experienced in both working with eating disorders and kind of the psychological aspect, um, and kind of build some trainings internally. So definitely agree with you that it is super important to be thinking long term. If people come to us, you know, there's, we always have to set the expectation too of they're like, I want to lose 50 pounds. I've been trying to lose 50 pounds. You know, what do I got to do to start losing weight today? And it's a lot of that then is having an expectation conversation in the beginning too, of like, we got to set the stage for sustainable habits. Like people put on the CGM and expect that the weight just starts coming off just by wearing it. So, you know, got to have the expectation that it still requires work and yep. consistent effort. So I'm sorry, guys, it's not a bullet fix. <laughs> I can totally not what people want to hear, but yeah. Yeah. It's the same. I say it all the time when people join our coaching program, it's like, that was just your, your ticket into the game. Like that yeah. thing changes. If nothing changes, we still have to put in the work and, and go yeah. through the process. Uh, what would you say is like the biggest difference between what you guys do and like other, um, other CGMs on the market? Yeah. So we're the only company that does include the human component. Um, so every other CGM company out there is just giving you the hardware and then an app to go with it. 
Um, so we're the only people that are including the coaching. And obviously, as, as we've kind of dug into several times, we really believe that it's very important. Um, I don't want people to walk away thinking like, oh, I had a glucose spike. I can never eat bananas again. Uh, you know, that is not the lesson that we're trying to help people instill. So having that human component is helpful, both in making sure, again, you're pulling out the right signals out of the data, but also making sure that you have somebody there to bounce ideas with or hold you accountable or have that emotional support. Sometimes we're not even there to educate, but we're there just kind of almost as like a friend or a peer through your health journey. So that's the biggest difference. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and what do you think is like the biggest misconception about using a glucose monitor that people might have going into it? Yeah, I think the most obvious one is people think that it's only for diabetics. So that's kind of like the standard if we're looking at just like uh, if we ask an average person on the street, they've only ever heard it for diabetics. And so that's, of course, part of what we're trying to change is that focus on prevention or kind of being an advocate for your health before we've gotten to the point of treatment. Um, it's very important for diabetics. We're certainly not trying to take away that access to that group as well. It's just that it can be a helpful tool for a much wider audience. And then understanding how much glucose is influenced or connected to a lot of other conditions or how you feel your energy levels beyond, you know, just classic diabetes. So I think that's one of the biggest ones. And then the second one is kind of what we, we talked about of then once people are like, okay, I should use a CGM. I'm interested in this. They're expecting of like, how can I minimize any glucose response whatsoever? And again, that's also not the goal. Um, it's, carbohydrates, I don't believe are evil or, um, you know, banned for life. There is certainly a time and place for carbohydrate restriction, but, uh, we aren't aiming for a flatline glucose for people in general. I know personally, I would have a field day with just seeing the different data, <laughs> data points of different foods and how that all plays together. Yeah. And that's one of like the most interesting things when we started to just see more and more people's data working with real people is that it really varies from person to person, which again is like why it's always, it depends because how you and I are going to respond to like the same exact, maybe whole food nutrient dense meal is not going to be the same. Uh, there's just so much variability between people. And that's really what's interesting is kind of figuring out how you respond best. Like what should be your go-to meals? Like if it's something you eat every day, it's really interesting to see how you respond to that. Uh, so that, you know, kind of with your routine meals, how to optimize that in a sense. Yeah, totally. Um, how long have you guys been in business? How long has NutriSense been around? Yeah. So we started taking our first customers in September of 2019. So just about three years. Awesome. I'm wondering like what, obviously when you start something like that, it kind of maybe takes on a life of its own or goes in a direction that you didn't expect. What were some of the things that you learned early on through the data that you were collecting through working with your clients that you were like, okay, we need to evolve or expand or add X, Y, Z thing. Uh, what were some of those lessons that you learned early on in the process? Yeah. I think a big one was just how much more we talk about stress and sleep than we were originally anticipating. We were really focused on like nutrition experiments, like your dietary intake, like logging your meals. And we're, we're primary built in the beginning days of just focusing on nutrition. 
But then we realize that you really can't move the needle in a lot of these areas if we're ignoring these others really important components. So now we're trying to build in more um, data integrations again to kind of have other signals that round out some of those factors like stress and sleep, since a lot of people are tracking some of that in other wearables, other data, being able to kind of house that in one place to help uh, people understand what's happening in each of those pillars. So I think that's a big one is really underestimating how much of an impact that would be and then how much stress people really are under. Uh, it, it turned out to be just so much more of a focus than we originally anticipated. Yeah, I know there's a lot of people who are like, um, I just want to keep my head in the sand and not realize how much stress I'm under. Exactly. Nothing changes if we do that. Like yeah. uh, we've all had those things. For me, it was probably like, paying attention to finances. I was like, I just don't even want to know. But then <laughs> once I actually took my head out of the sand, it was like, oh, this isn't so bad and I can actually fix it. And then yeah. put yourself in the driver's seat. So I highly recommend everybody take the lessons from people like myself who wanted to just ignore the data that was right in front of me and um, get yourself involved, start start tracking these things and and have some awareness around how stress is impacting you, how a lack of a wind down routine or sleep quality is impacting you. And then obviously nutrition movement. Um, do you, have you done a lot of personal experimentation with like your, Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or some of the things that you found that were surprising with your own like response to different foods or combinations? Yeah. So for me, something that was really surprising was just my responses to different fruits. So if we're thinking like just traditional glycemic index, you expect it to generally match what, you know, a high glycemic index food versus low. Um, and so I've tried exactly like you're saying, just about every fruit eaten in isolation on an empty stomach to see exactly how it responds. And I consistently have the lowest glucose response to bananas, which is really, you know, counter to the glycemic index scale. And that's just something random about myself that just the way I respond, I'm just tolerate bananas extremely well. So when before I was like, oh, they're really starchy, like maybe I shouldn't eat as many bananas, but uh, that's just something I tolerate well. Similar with all kinds of food combinations, like testing out all the different carbohydrates. So I respond better to white rice than brown rice. I respond better to white potatoes than sweet potatoes, just the little nuances that you might not have realized. Um, and also a lot of people see this effect, but I see it pretty strongly as how much higher my glucose levels will be overnight, the later and later I eat. So I'll start to see that those numbers be pushed up if I'm eating after 7 p.m. And then for like each hour later, there's like a pretty much a consistent increase in my glucose levels overnight, even if it's healthy, you know, my normal dinner meal. So being aware of that effect of just the timing and the evening of eating. That's super interesting. I know every data nerd like myself is ready <laughs> to like jump in. Like what is mine? Yeah. Yeah, all of this plays out. Um, so for I mean, I'm going to get connected with you so I can, so I can, um, get started with that. And, uh, I want to also have my girlfriend participate because she's the same as I am. She'll like yeah. geek out on all of this. Um, where can everybody like find out more about what you're doing and if they're interested, um, sign up for your program, things like that. Just, uh, if you want to yeah. let everybody know where to go. Yeah. So if you're interested in trying it out, um, you just go to our website, which is nutrisense.io. And then also on our website, we have um, a blog and a newsletter where we're putting out, you know, a ton of information and content if you just kind of want to follow along and learn. And same with our social media, it's all Nutrisense.io, um, putting out stories, putting out research we're paying attention to, trends in the data. So if you're just kind of curious, those are the best places to follow along. 
Perfect. I will post all of that in the show notes. And um, I really appreciate you joining. This was a fun conversation for me. I am going to uh, get that connected to myself. Yeah, and definitely. I'm going to post out like all of the weird things that my body responds to and have a field day with it. Um, I appreciate the time. Thanks for joining me and we'll talk soon. Yeah, absolutely.